0: Hi, everybody. This show is a project of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art. We've launched a new series of podcasts examining the relevance of the classical tradition today, and this is the next episode of our debut miniseries, Cities We Live In. We're excited to bring new topics to new audiences and want your feedback. Write to podcasts at classicist.org with your comments. This show is sponsored by Historical Concepts. You can find them online at historicalconcepts.com or on Instagram at historicalconcepts. Welcome to Cities We Live In. I'm Kellen Krauss, an architect who grew up in the suburbs and is now living the city life. Each time I return home, I think about what lessons can be applied from a traditional walkable city to car oriented developments. On this show, I'll travel from city to city with two fellow architects and urbanists.
1: Hi, my name is Rodrigo Boyat Montenegro.
0: And I am Anthony Kataniak. We'll meet up with friends who can tell us all about what it's like to live in their city. In this episode, we visit Milwaukee, Wisconsin.
2: I think Milwaukee is an amazing city, and it's a city that just keeps sharing precious amenities every day to me that I'm still discovering. It's a really wonderful, dynamic place to be.
0: That's Wade Weissman, a traditional architect with offices throughout the country, including right where he grew up in Milwaukee. You can see some of Wade's work in his newly released book, Heirloom Houses, The Architecture of Wade Weissman.
2: I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where the headquarters of my now practice is located. I also have two satellite offices one in santa barbara california and the other one is in pittsburgh pennsylvania and those three offices give us an opportunity to work in various areas around the country but our headquarters in milwaukee is still our main office and so our focus of the majority of our work our technical work the majority of our drafting is located in this city i grew up here and spent a lot of my life here went to my undergraduate program here because it didn't develop on such a grand scale as Chicago did or other urban areas, it never really became statistically a place where big box operators and huge national chains ended up taking up all the retail and the restaurants and things. One of the things I love most about Milwaukee is that ever since I was a kid, there's still little tiny gourmet ethnic grocers. There are still restaurants that are now third generation. They never really got bought up by big corporations and the family just sold out and they became part of the community and now they're just part of the fabric. Even after I would leave for long periods of time, like when I went away to graduate school and started my first internships. And when I would come back here, the things I found so refreshing about it were wow, there are all of these things now that are icons in the city and fourth generation grocer, where you walk in and all the fruit is polished by hand and everything is merchandised with that care and that heritage is so amazing to come back to. Those are the things that I usually introduce people to. I'll point out the Calatrava, I'll point out other significant pieces of architecture, but my favorite things are taking somebody to a restaurant that's been there since the 50s and hasn't changed. They still serve a great big cocktail in a tub, served the way it was 50 years ago or 60 years ago now, in some cases, the best pizza that I know is wafer thin, absolutely amazing, cooked in the same ovens that they had since 1954 when they opened. You take people there and there's just characters. The characters at the bar, the characters that are the servers, they're like right out of Central Casting. Those are the things that I think are so great. When you watch a movie, it's not about how fabulous the sets are decorated. It's about
1: personalities, right? Wade, one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating was the founding of Milwaukee and the three competing developers that ignored each other. It just blew my mind. And it just seems very entrepreneurial from the very beginning. Could you talk a little bit about the historic characters of all three neighborhoods and how eventually integrated into one whole city.
2: It's kind of interesting, right? So there are different tribes that had settled here. The Menominee Valley, having long marshlands, going into Lake Michigan, were great for rice and other things. Wild rice would grow there, and they lived off the land. But the first traders came through right after French exploration, and all of a sudden it became these little outposts. Well, it was nice because you could have access to Lake Michigan, and there was shipping, as agriculture began to grow in Wisconsin and the west it was easy to bring those products to the ports you had kilborn town and juno town these little neighborhoods they didn't want to line up their street grid juno town was slightly skewed and didn't line up with any of the street rhythm that kilborn town had
0: just because they weren't paying attention to each other or because they were deliberately trying to make it difficult to communicate between the towns
2: they were essentially creating their own laws and they were cultivating their own sort of businesses, and they were also trying to keep the residents that were on one side or the other on those sides to spend their mm-hmm. money. So mm-hmm. you go to the merchants there, your business is conducted there, if you don't have a bridge to get across the river, there's no boats or anything, and so sure. you wouldn't do that. So they were trying to essentially create autonomous little towns, eventually, clearly as the city began to grow and the need to have the bridges were there. So Wade, I can relate a lot to what you're saying about Milwaukee being this family-oriented, multi-generational city. I grew up in Pittsburgh that has a similar blue-collar background to Milwaukee. And I can really relate to the idea that there are these ethnic neighborhoods and ethnic businesses that have become part of the fabric of the city. And it's become very iconic, especially once you move away and you go back to arrive there and it's part of home to you. So I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on your family connections to Milwaukee and what that meant for you growing up. I'm really grateful to my father and my mother. My mother grew up here and so she was much more connected to the social aspects of the city and the businesses and the things that I still utilize today, even though they've been there. When I first learned to drive, my mother would say, I want want you to go to this door and get this and I'm making pizza. So go to this place. He makes the best Italian sausage in town. She knew where all those things were and I became very familiar with it. But my father being a creative, he showed me the inner beauty of the things that were here, the physical beauty and he practiced what he preached. My father came into a family that was very blue collar, very factory oriented. And he was an immigrant from Germany that came here in 1957 with his family. They found a sponsor in Milwaukee and then he arrived here and he was a very gifted artist. So he started a art studio here in the sixties doing photographic retouching and background art. Hmm. And he expanded to photography during the 1970s. He had a fine art gallery here. He was very entrepreneurial and he was one of the first ones to go into the warehouse, take an entire floor, gut it and created his first art gallery. And this is in 67, I think. The same year he bought an old cherry farm up in the Door Peninsula of Wisconsin and wanted to have a more natural outpost to inspire his creativity. And so when I was a kid, we used to drive up there most weekends. I literally absorbed like a sponge. Like on Sunday sometimes, when my parents would go out late on a Saturday, let my mom sleep in, my dad would say, "Hey." Come on, kids, let's go for a drive. And we never knew where we were going to go. It was Mm -hmm. always a surprise. But one of the things he used to do is he would take us into the old industrial valley called the Menominee Valley in Milwaukee, where all the factories were. The Milwaukee Railroad had its car shops there. There were massive coal loaders that unloaded freighters full of coal and materials and things. All the abandoned cars were put into those compressors and they were stacked high so there was this gritty side to Milwaukee that I kind of fell in love with. And to this day, I still want to use a lot of steel and rivets in my architecture. Yeah. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> that's great. Milwaukee was the 10th largest city in the country in the 60s. Hmm. Vibrant, amazing businesses. It had sure. an incredible industrial base. It was kind of the tool and die shop of the States. a German heritage with precision mechanical mm-hmm. backgrounds. And breweries uh, too, right? Breweries? Yes, exactly.
1: One of the things that I find fascinating about breweries specifically, and you see this in Europe and even in Guatemala, actually, the breweries founded in the 19th century, perhaps early 20th century, they almost formed their small little towns. But looking at a map of Milwaukee, there were several breweries that would form their own little streets and the factory itself would incorporate into the city. Is that still the case now, or has it pretty much disappeared?
2: The largest brewery in the world during the war was Schlitz. It was bigger than Anheuser-Busch, and it had an enormous campus on the north side of downtown. My father's studio was only about three blocks away from it, and it was at the sort of end of an industrial railroad corridor, and then the campus connected a little bit further north where they used to keep all the grain for brewing and the hops. They had this huge railroad switchyard that would literally bring all of the raw materials down into the brewery, and that was probably a 15-block campus. (laughs) Well, it was sold to Stroh's and dismantled, and so all the buildings were completely rehabilitated, and now it's become this fantastic entrepreneurial business park. Same thing with Pabst. Pabst had another campus up the hill from there that also was a massive campus where they made Pabst Blue Ribbon still made, but it's just not made there anymore. And then Gettleman was another one and Blatz was another one. So the city had these amazing little industrial complexes. Some were very urban, close to residential neighborhoods, so they were very tight. And some were a little more sprawling, like Schlitz, because it was the biggest and it had to have its own transportation network. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting that when these places change hands or are sold, what happens to the heritage architecture there? And those spaces are amazing. I mean, They had their own power plant. You walk in and it's eight stories of raw brick and steel and trusses and smokestacks made of steel. And it's just, it's incredible.
0: Yeah, sounds it. Yeah. Seems like there's a lot of these smaller businesses that have come into play in the last 10 or 20 years. Microbreweries, startups, tech that can take over easily these abandoned or sold off warehouses and campuses. Those neighborhoods that used to be totally just owned by Schlitz, the idea of it reminds me of a factory town where the factory was built and maybe some houses were created for the workers and their families. Have they become more dense over time? Are the campuses integrated with neighborhoods or are they still kind of isolated as their own campuses?
2: One of the things that happened historically when those were businesses is Security was a little bit of an issue, right, so they had fenced off areas streets didn't go through they would be stub ended or they'd have an entry point that was guarded and you had to seek access so one of the things that happens when like paps brewing went out of business, it was bought by a developer, one of the first things it did was start to open it up into the street grid so that there was more circulation into it and through it and that that also becomes a little more thriving and it was that used to be a major interchange. Now it's become this thriving little area. The really beautiful historic buildings. They had their own chapel. They had their own brew pub. They had these amazing little old buildings that were retained and saved. But then they had some pretty interesting ones. Like they had this terracotta grain silos, and they were amazing.
0: I, that's that's a lot of investment for a grain silo to make it out of terracotta, right?
2: Yeah. Wow. I, like, like big, like five foot by five foot radius. And then it was banded with steel. So aesthetically, they're amazing. Oh. <laughs> so some buildings and then the shipping and receiving and trucking, they put in some beautiful windows and that became big open office space for people. And so a lot of corporations that came in needed more office space would, would take those. But the smaller buildings still became more boutique And so you have smaller businesses using those. So it's really kind of interesting. And it's nice because it It has a more traditional feel to it. It's not just great big buildings everywhere like a big industrial campus. It was built from a small brewery in the middle 1800s. And then as they expanded, they'd add buildings and facilities and change the modes of transportation. That's pretty interesting.
0: One of the things I really like learning about what makes one city unique to another is what's the building stock like? What's the housing stock, not just necessarily the urban relationships and generational living Two types that come to mind in Milwaukee in particular for homes are the Polish flat and the German duplex, where the Polish flat in particular, unlike the German duplex, you had a family come in. There was a lot of Polish immigration at the beginning of the 20th century, and families would come in. They would want to own a home because it was such a remarkable feat of progress from serfdom that they're escaping. And they would build it incrementally. So they might build just a a one-story, one-and-a-half-story building, and then they would, over time, add a flat below there, maybe a basement, sunken basement. And then eventually, as the families get wealthier and wealthier, they wouldn't need to lease out some of the space of this house that they've added onto. And so you could tell that they've made it. And it seems to make up so many rich parts of the, the neighborhoods around Milwaukee, both of those types, the Polish flat and the German duplex.
2: The areas like you're talking about, Brady Street in the Lower East Side, a few blocks from here, they were all immigrant housing back then. And it is a mix of the Polish flat and the German duplex. My mom grew up in a Polish flat, which was essentially just a simple form house, right? That was basically set up for workers. And they didn't have gardens. They had yards. It was all about being able to put your laundry on a line. It was like a luxury back then. Having a little yard with green space, you could grow some tomatoes or have a little flower garden or or a vegetable garden. I live on the Lower East Side of the city and I bought a coach house and gutted and renovated it over the last few years. There's this wonderful heritage here where there were these beautiful grand homes that were built for the wealthy merchants and the business owners that were doing well along Lake Michigan and along some of the Western avenues. They were all built needing coach houses. They had horses and horse-drawn vehicles and there's this legacy of these amazing coach houses that are right behind all these mansions and large scale more beautifully architectural design homes but there's a utility about them their facades are elegant because they wanted to match the main residence but there's a utility to them and then over the years there was an adaptive reuse where so there was less domestic help. They didn't need their own on-site living arrangements. They didn't need a coachman to feed the horses and to take the gentleman down to his place of business in the day or to fancy events in the evening. I had really fun with this because it was kind of a clean slate and I literally came in and reshaped the whole plan. But I kept a utility aesthetic to it. I used chicken wire glass in places and Mm. a lot of steel and painted brick. I'm fascinated by utility architecture, whereas people may want the big showy house in the front. I kind of want the utility garage or coach house in the back. I'm more interested in that. I think it's a little more dynamic. And I like the fact that it's more anonymous, not as fancy, not as stylistic. And so it being anonymous, you can throw furnishings and touches into it that can be more contemporary or they can be like, I have a lot of industrial antiques and I enjoy that kind of thing.
0: Milwaukee had some of its own landmark buildings and, and architects and some pretty notable things in its own right, though. I mean, what, what are some examples of some of your favorite buildings downtown and some of those notable architects who built them?
2: Well, my favorites really are still some of the big, mighty factories that are there. They're a little less gritty. So like the Allen Bradley, it's got the world's largest four-sided clock. When you drive up from Chicago, you can see it from the highway. And then they got a little one that has a huge digital sign on it now that reads the temperature and the time. You got the clock tower, and then you got the temperature, which are two things Milwaukee love more than anything. They love talking (laughs) about the weather. But then there are these other buildings that I really, really love. What's interesting is some companies like NML and others would hire very famous architects, but a lot wouldn't even use architects. They would just use skilled builders. I got to say, one of the things that I love about it, especially the old buildings, I'm really inspired by the industrial utility buildings. I mean, that, that really is sort of my, my love and my passion. These spaces were built for durability and work. Yeah. They were essential things that were needed in them. Lots of light, fresh air, big spaces, the ability to create and build in industrial settings. And there's a mite to them, right? So these huge cranes that would, you know, sort of hoist along the center of these factories and things. Those things to me are, are really enduring because they're kind of anonymous. But if you look at them now, the ones that have survived, they had an integrity about them. They were built of durable materials. They still stand today, even though a lot of them have been abandoned or unused for years and years and years. And the aesthetic of them is also pretty raw. It was built well for durability, but it wasn't ornamental. There's this wonderful, quiet, anonymous integrity about it. And I find that to be very, very inspiring because I think the spaces inside have the ability to be very powerful and they can be freshened with a level of big open space and filled with light and those big durable columns. And I'm always inspired by them. You never see an architectural plaque. They were built by staff architects for the railroad companies or for utility companies or something. And they're amazing. Like the Milwaukee water filtration plant on Lake Michigan is one of my most favorite buildings in the city. It is as a municipal structure. It was built with that kind of pride in the early 20th mm-hmm. century, but it's this mixed mash of styles. It's kind of art deco. It's got red clay, vaulted clay tile roof. It's all built of native stone And and it's huge, it's got this huge clock tower, it's got all of the water filtration facilities on these long wings filled with these incredible windows that were all industrial. And you look down at that building, it's still in existence today, it's still the source of our water system. And I look at it and I just say, nobody would ever do that in their right mind today. Nobody would ever do that. No, No city would ever do something like that. It was probably designed by a staff architect. Yeah. Or a local architect that they could do for a more reason. They wouldn't hire like Halliburton Root or some of these well-known firms at the time. It's just incredible how some of these buildings have so much character. They're so interesting. They're not slaves to any particular architectural correctness. Mm-hmm. They served a purpose and they look dignified. So for me, I'm more inspired by those kinds of things than I'm inspired by like the Beaux Arts Library. Not that I don't appreciate it, and appreciate the craftsmanship, but there's something about the anonymity of these other more dignified civic structures that were for the working people. And I love that, and there was a pride about it. Every place has these wonderful historic bits and pieces from all the lives of the people that wanted to make a difference. And no matter where you are, if you poke around, you're gonna find things that inspire you everywhere.
0: Beauty, in the classical tradition, can be defined with enduring buildings built to last and adapt as time brings new requirements, fit for purpose with clear expression of type such as a brewery or a two-flat or a power plant. It's a distinct definition from a subjective predilection of taste and one that is so crucial to understand how we build today in contrast to the amazing cities and buildings that came before us. Even a humble utilitarian building can bring delight with proper scale and use of material and expression of that purpose. These buildings have set estates for Milwaukee and then empower it to thrive with a shared appreciation for its neighborhoods, the crucial ingredients for an active community that its citizens actually participate in and appreciate what the city has to offer because of that backdrop. Milwaukee is a city we live in, vibrant and full of life. At Home is a production of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, a national nonprofit promoting the practice, understanding, and appreciation of classical design. To become a member and learn about additional programming, visit classicist.org. This episode was edited and produced by me, Kellen Krauss, Rodrigo Bojat Montenegro, and Justin Kegley. Many thanks to our sponsor, Historical Concepts. Find them online at historicalconcepts.com or on Instagram at historicalconcepts.